Hello, I'm Andy Murray, the Executive Director of the Major Projects Association. It's a pleasure to welcome everyone to uh, another one of our podcasts following a really interesting seminar that we had on making projects investable. Um, I'm currently joined by James Stewart and Paul Innes. Um, James chaired our session and Paul was one of our speakers. So uh, I'll ask him to do a very quick introduction before I kick off in terms of what we'd like to discuss on this podcast. So James, uh, welcome. Please say who you are, where you're from and what you bit about your background. So James Stewart, I think I wear a few hats at the moment, but I'll pick Senior Advisor of Agilia Infrastructure Partners for today. And I have a long history in infrastructure, both um, Chief Exec of PUK and IUK, and also Global Chair of, the K of KPMG's infrastructure business. Great, and that's Partnerships UK and Infrastructure UK, that's and right. under the PUK and IUK. So uh, hence with that, uh, um, almost perfect background for, for a chair of our event on uh, making projects investable. So thank you for, for doing that on the day, uh, James, and uh, following up with this podcast. Uh, Paul, same question to you. Um, where are you from? Thanks, Who are you? Thanks, background? Um, good morning, everybody. Um, Paul Innes, I'm a director in Grant Thornton's Business Risk Services team. Um, I look after our project and programme assurance service line. Um, and with one of my other hats on, I'm a high risk review team leader for the Infrastructure and Projects Authority. Great. And Paul, you sort of took us through the world of risk in terms of its impact on uh, project investment appeal. So we'll come back onto that in, in a moment. Um, but I'll just do a quick recap in terms of you know why we had a seminar on making projects investable. Um, it was a member request. So every year we go out to members, ask for topics of things that we would like to do a deep dive into. And we had numerous requests that can we revisit uh, how to make projects more investable. But rather than talking about project finance in general, we were asking the question, well, how can we set that up and establish things in a way that makes them uh, uh, more, appealing, more appealing and therefore more likely to attract the investment that they need. And this was in a context of, I think we had it in your opening, James, of around sort of a, a trillion pounds worth of projects, whether that's uh, you know, infrastructure that the UK requires, whether that's industrial facilities or, or real estate. But we know that there's a big pipeline of some quite significant projects and developments in the UK. We also know with current economic context that funding for those isn't all going to come from the Treasury, from the Exchequer. So we need to be looking for other forms of finance to be able to pay for these uh, these projects. Um, I think we had a bit of context as well ahead of the seminar in terms of the you know uh, the amount of finance that is available uh, in terms of the pension pools, for example, in the UK and also elsewhere, and the sort of uh, the increasing uh, size of the sort of green finance schemes that are uh, that have been set up. Um, but we had a, a great uh, reference around that, you know, money is global uh, and therefore it will find the best projects anywhere in the world. So uh, with a UK orientation, we were thinking about how do we set up our UK projects to uh, you know, secure that uh, that finance. So, James, if I come to you first, in your introduction, you gave us a, a, a great run through sort of the history of, of different sort of uh, approaches to financing projects, and you sort of set out 
uh, sort of five uh, different aspects as well in doing so. One is around those those particular models uh, that we use. Uh, second point that UK is very different to to the rest of the world. Um, there's a, a significant role of government in terms of um, uh, supporting those schemes and defining those schemes, uh, and ultimately that the, the government is the is the final sponsor because they're the the ultimate. Uh, recipients of these sort of economic benefits from from such schemes uh, and they also reflected that but actually in the uk we do lack a domestic sponsor so the likes of an edf or hitachi that that would uh, you know put the schemes together in, in in other parts of the world so i thought to ease us in to the discussion james perhaps you could just remind us of what those sort of different contractual models are and how they've sort of evolved over time yeah, because I mean, to me, whether a project's investor is so inextricably linked to the contractual model. And when I thought about it, I was just sort of amazed at the journey the UK has been on. So I think pre-1980s, you know, it was all public sector, really, public sector owned. Then we had the privatisation programme where the majority of the utilities, and this I think is where the UK differs from many other countries in the world, but the majority of the utilities became privatised, subject to regulation, um, and, um, you know, very successful model, in my view, the ability of those regulated utilities to raise a lot of capital, 10 billion a year, I think, on average, at a very low, at a very low cost. Then the, the 90s heralded the, the PFI initiative, which really dominated um, all the infrastructure that fell outside those regulated utilities, um, I think, driven by uh, a lack of trust in the public sector to deliver the the massive investment the, the government wanted to make, um, off-balance sheet treatment in those early days. Um, and that really dominated for, for 10 years. And it heralded really the start of the project finance market in the UK. We you know we start off in the early days with 18-year debt, um, the emergence of the infrastructure funds, and then we gravitated to 25 and even 30-year debt as the market matured. And then, of course, as you know, PFI, I'm going to say, went out of fashion um, 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 for various reasons. Um, and now we really have a very mixed economy of, of contractual models. Um, I mean, the big deals have gone back to the state. So HS2, Crossrail, you know, the state is the dominant sponsor um, and, 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 and investor, really, um, provider of funds. We've had the emergence of the hybrid RAB model for Thames Tideway and New Nuclear, which I think is a very successful model. Again, recognising that those big projects are too big for the for the the normal RAB model, um, and the government has to take some of the more extreme risks. Uh, we've got, and then we've got a sort of myriad of other structures, you know, um, offtos, local authority development schemes, um, and, and and I could go through a, a lot more. So, so yeah, a real evolution. I think that's why the, and I think that's one of the reasons why actually the UK is such an interesting market for, for international people because, because we've sort of tried and done uh, a lot, and seen yeah. the good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> and there's a lot of sort of, sort of ingenuity in those different models to try and strike that right balance between the different interests of the. Uh, um, of, of the owner, uh, the sponsor, if you like, and the the different sources of finance that they may that they may attract. Um, so, uh, Paul, uh, you, you talked about risk, uh, as I mentioned before, um, and, and in particular, um, uh, you went through sort of I think four key points around um, what what helps um, 
reduce the risk uh, of the other major project, but also match the risk of the project to the appetite of those who are likely to to come in and help finance it. But you, you talked about the importance of def definition, getting the, you know, what is it we're looking to do and the narrative around that really important up front. Um, the, the decision making structures or, or governance, uh, as, as you just you know, explained it, uh, the capability of both the sponsors and the delivery organisations uh, and undersure, uh, and then ensuring about a value, understand where the value of the project comes from. But through that, I felt the underlying theme that you kept on coming back to was all one around confidence. And, and what struck me is that when you were talking about confidence and, and James, please uh, perhaps reflect as well with your experience, um, often you were talking about things that you can't put on a scorecard, you know, such as who's leading this, who are the people involved. It was coming down to some personal uh, aspects rather than, you know, um, you know, how, you know, what's the duration and what are the critical milestones involved in in the project. So, um, perhaps you could expand on that in terms of um, your thoughts around how do we make sure we get the right team and the right people involved in the project to to provide that confidence yeah absolutely and, and when we when we spoke about this last week it was very much looking at it from the perspective of what can we as a project and program community do to better engage potential finance uh, to make make projects and programs more investable because uh, i'll go back to the word that you used andy it's about confidence um and investor confidence is absolutely key that and that plays out in a number of different ways one of the ones that you've picked out there is is about the uh, the level of transparency openness um, and credibility of the the team who are actually driving the project i think one one of the concepts that came out last week which was a very powerful one again we'll probably come back to this later in this conversation is is the concept of um having somebody who is able to effectively marshal all of the inputs that are coming from the project and all of the inputs that are coming from finance in a kind of a sponsor role. So somebody who can promote the project effectively. Um, but investor confidence, being able to engage uh, potential investors with a powerful story that's been well thought through, knowing where the project or programme is going to go is really, really important. Um, because that's the way that investors will uh, will engage with with the best projects that are in the market. As, again, as you said earlier on, Andy, uh, the UK isn't the only game in town. Um, investment tends to be quite global in its nature, particularly in, on, on a large scale basis. Um, and that means that projects and programs have to compete. They have to pull their best foot forward. Um, so I think I think that aspect of um, uh, having a clear direction, having uh, strong leadership, being transparent about your object, what your objectives are, and, and having a, effectively a, a well-defined project or program is, is is absolutely key. I mean, from my perspective on this, I mean, when one thing that really came out strongly from the discussion was, and it's an obvious point, that when you're looking at whether projects are investable, you're looking at the project at a very early stage. This is. Mm -hmm. You know, you're relying on a business case or a feasibility study and a whole series of forecasts. And in inevitably there are just unknowns proliferating. I mean, if it, if there's, you know, if it's a, a transport project which has got revenue attached to it, um, like HS2 or Crossrail, then you're having to take a view on what future revenues are going to be and, and then all the risks inherent. So, so to me, 
the two big things are are have you got the funding because most of the projects that i've seen fail are funding lack of funding is a big part of or affordability to put it another way but then the other thing is is the people who are putting up the money whether it's state or private need to have confidence that that project is going to get delivered um within the budget on time and all the rest of it and so confidence confidence and affordability are my key points on, on investability um yeah that's where sort of um assurance can help and and the role of the sort of independent assurance to to help with that that confidence we we, we briefly discussed sort of parallels um to the hollywood film uh, industry where they have things like completion uh, insurance uh, and um you know when i looked at that some years ago uh, that was very personal in terms of the 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 insurer um has things like step-in rights if uh, key milestones aren't met, but they also have a role to play in satisfying themselves that the people appointed to key roles, whether that's the director, the editor, the casting um, director and, and so on, uh, are people that give them confidence that the uh, film will be made on time. And clearly in, their, uh, in that context, the, the completion insurance is all about on time because it's all about fitting the release into the uh, the cinema schedules and and the promotion schedules and and so on um but uh, obviously their their projects are sort of you know 15 months 18 months um and uh, i guess a bit more predictable when they can think about who might be working on it whereas in in certainly uh, projects where there's a high public uh, aspect to it uh, with uh, the relevant sort of procurement regulations. We don't know who's going to be doing the work at the point, as you say, early on in the scheme where we're looking for for investments. So on reflection, I wasn't quite sure whether that that analogy <laughs> really worked, but but it's interesting that that one is quite personal in terms of how those uh, insurance schemes work. But, but the, I think one of the problems we have right now is that confidence has taken a battering. Um, um, yeah. And you know there's been so much you know we talk about optimism bias but optimism bias is an undeveloped concept but it basically means people are far too optimistic risk you know lots and lots of projects go over budget and get get delayed and so i think confidence is low and i think the other thing we didn't really talk about this the other thing is risk appetite is probably at an all-time low if you are if you are trying to parcel out risk and 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 that's what investors try and do they try and get rid of as much risk as they possibly can from the equity level then you know the risk appetite down the supply chain is 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 low at the moment and that's causing some of these projects difficulty and the and the sponsors straight investors in the projects a lot of difficulty yeah and there was a really interesting case that was offered um of a stadium project um so one that we can't re reveal but um it, the, the the finance package that was put together for it was based on a a 25 year uh, repayment and it was based on very conservative assumptions in terms of ticket revenues, um, capacity of the stadium, the TV rights that they may get, and 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 so on. Relegation. Um, <laughs> relegation was in was a factor there as well. And it, it, coming back to that risk appetite, that must have been done uh, where there was quite a low level of confidence in that sporting sector overall. Um, because then what happened, you know, TV money came in, it even went through the the credit crunch, but the the project, the, the, the stadium was paid off in 10 years, not 25 years. So that that um, low appetite would have meant a much higher cost of borrowing for that 
project than was really necessary. So there's a, clearly a sweet spot, isn't there, in terms of being too risk averse or or not, you know, um, to to uh, risk taking. Uh, and in both of those extremes, you're likely to end up paying more for the project than one that's in that sort of sweet spot, spot that Paul mentioned before, which is matching the market appetite with the risk profile of the of the project and the solution that the project provides. Um, mm. I'm pleased to say that we're joined by um, Stuart uh, Westgate. Um, we mentioned that the role of sponsors uh, a moment ago, and, and Stuart, you you provided us with a sponsor's perspective and, and sort of gave us examples of HS2 and Crossrail and, and others, uh, most, mostly transport, but not all transport. But before I sort of um, uh, um, come in quickly with a question for you, perhaps you could just uh, introduce yourself. Who, who are you and where you're from? Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, so Stuart Westgate, I um, lead infrastructure and transport and cities in BCG, but historically have around 30 years experience delivering major projects and programmes. Great. So uh, Stuart, we were touching on um, just a moment ago of the, the role of the sponsor um, and, and sort of a, a term that kept on coming up um, during our discussion was that the need for a deal maker, um, you know, either uh, someone or a group on behalf of a uh, an organisation because it could be a function um, whose whose principal role it is to you know develop the idea for the scheme or the project, um, package it up uh, structurally in terms of how it's going to be funded, uh, how it's going to be um, developed, uh, and in a way that then matches the you know potential source of of, of finance that that's available. Um, and Stuart, sorry, James, you, you were reflecting um, that perhaps there's not enough of that in your experience from when you were working at Partnerships UK and Infrastructure UK. Um, but we did have a, a great example from from Environment Agency where there's a team uh, uh, within the Environment Agency specifically set up to go and uh, and look for sources of finance to match to the various uh, projects that they've got in their uh, in their pipeline in their portfolio. So. Perhaps we could just have a, a, a sort of the, the remaining time on this discussion about that critical role of, of the deal maker um, and what sort of capabilities are needed. You know, do we need to start developing different people um, in, in the major project sector now so that we've got the deal makers in five years, or do we need them? Do we need them now? Who would like to come in on that? Well, if I just kick off um, uh, to say, uh, I think we should recognise that the role of sponsor is now a very mature um, and, and well, I think, appreciated role in uh, the major projects world. And it wasn't always thus, but certainly over the last 20 years, it's become more prominent. Um, and in the market, we see uh, the role carried out in a number of different ways, in particularly uh, rules-based cultures, uh, national safety asset owners with uh, significant safety pro profiles. The sponsor role is quite prescriptive. Um, it, it, there's a particular workflow and uh, a role for interventions and definitions. Um, but in many other organisations, it's a much more free ranging role where the sponsor has uh, quite a creative perspective in how to realise benefits, uh, look along the broadest uh, range of options, not only in terms of the solution design, but indeed topic we're discussing today, how to how to bring investment, how to bring funding. And I think um, uh, there are some really interesting examples, and if you look at uh, in uh, deep history, the construction of the Channel Tunnel uh, rail link, um, the uh, the creation of funding through the uh, um, uh, the King's Cross lands, um, 
and uh, and then subsequently in Thameslink, where we saw quite considerable uh, sponsor intervention when time and cost were becoming um, unacceptable uh, under the original terms of the project. There were innovative ways of bringing that kind of either phasing of the project to deliver benefits in a way that would suit the needs of the customer, but not break the bank in terms of funding envelope. Um, in the case of CTRL, really leverage private sector investment uh, in order to firstly deliver the transport solution um, and then exploit the development of, of property uh, around that. And I think we're increasingly seeing that. And more recently in Crossrail, I think there were some very strong examples, particularly Canary Wharf Station and Woolwich, where we saw private sector uh, in this case, in that case, uh, developer on the one hand, construction company on the other, uh, bringing a construction solution for the core project, but also uh, exploiting that um, to the benefit of their, their business interests in terms of creating residential and commercialization opportunity. And then very recently, the, uh, the, the, the thus um, uh, not launched, but the development of Crossrail 2, which had a huge, huge um, dependence on a line of route uh, land value uplift and property development, again, by bringing a number of other parties through a, a very proactive sponsorship approach uh, to bring extra value to those investments, make a, a stronger case for those investments, if you like. Great, and, and you gave an example of Euston Station more recently uh, as well, in terms of it was a, the government that effectively became the, the deal maker there. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I think Euston is a, a particularly good example because um, uh, government, I think, informed by private sector um, insights, realised that the best way of truly realising the potential value of that massive investment as the, the southern terminus of the high speed two rail link was to engage private sector development, um, creative thinking by by coming up with the seed funding of the of the development, so the uh, uh, the, the foundations and the area development costs, um, in order to not to not prohibit the subsequent development by commercial parties um, and treasury in that case invested several hundred millions of pounds and engaged private sector project um, specialists who are st still uh, uh, still in play there to make sure that the construction of the project didn't prohibit that development, but furthermore created the necessary foundations, lift pits and facilities that the uh, the future development could truly exploit, uh, which all too often, if not done properly, ends up being locked out um, and therefore it, it does inhibit future development. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are two big market factors playing into this. One is, as Andy, you said, one of my points was that we don't have a large domestic sponsor. Um, so that tends to mean we have multiple sponsors um, uh, on the private sector side. And secondly, that the state is taking a much larger part in, in a lot of projects in the UK. And, and, and Stuart's example of Houston is a great example of that. And when you've got multi-stakeholders in a project, you need a, you need a deal maker. You need someone who is going to bring the, who is going to drive the deal to a conclusion, facilitate agreements, because what tends to happen is that everyone just looks at everybody else to take risk and and um and 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 delay ensues and government is particularly bad at this in my view you know and because often there are multiple bits of government involved in these deals whether it be the depart the sponsoring department we've now got the uk infrastructure bank providing um, finance the treasury is always lingering in the background of all these deals so 
as well as being a deal maker for the deal as a whole, there probably needs to be a deal maker for the public sector contribution um, uh, uh, to the deal as well. Um, so, and I, you know, I just think there's an absence of deal makers. If you look at corporate finance, the top corporate financiers are deal makers in a, di it's a different market, but that's what they do. That's, that's what they get. That's what they get paid the big bucks to do. Yeah, and and actually, Tim, you mentioned that in your your intro on the day about the. The, the difference between the corporate finance and the project finance and so do we need more of those corporate finance skill sets into the project finance um, community or, or just the approaches well the context i mentioned that was we we had an interesting discussion on the day about you know small deal does size matter in in, in mm -hmm. when we're talking about investability of projects and i think the conclusion we came to um was it does matter and that if you're at the small end, you have to reduce complexity because because the the the, the fixed cost of complexity in a small deal is just overwhelming. And one solution to removing complexity is to bring in a, a corp, what I call a corporate finance solution, where you make no distinction between um, layers of equity and debt, and you just have one financial package that has a weighted average cost of capital. And that is a market that never developed in the UK. It has actually developed in some international markets, but it, it, it you know, we never saw sponsors and um, just um, saying, well, finance deals off our balance sheet um, um, to get them done. And then they could have refinanced them at a later stage. That, that model just never happened. And I thought it was a great shame. I think the other, yeah. the other aspect of this, um, this role that we're kind of developing in the conversation is very much about um, somebody who can effectively own and manage a common understanding of risk or a common language that's applied to risk because quite often you'll find that uh, the project and the investor can take a, a, a different view or use, use different terminology uh, to, to describe risk. Um, so I think somebody sitting in that role who is able to um, uh bring together the different aspects of risk and create that common understanding is is very important again it comes back to uh, investors having confidence understanding what's going on and there being transparency so it, it is it is a very important role from that perspective as well and we had a great example of um deal makers from from the environment agency we had richard bowen and paul wise and and they gave a a number of examples of how they were looking for additional um, contributors to their projects and in any way, even in kind, they gave an example of uh, a beneficiary of one of their flood defence schemes being a, an employer in the area and it was a, a law firm. And so they provided legal advice to, to the project and drawing up the, the various agreements that were needed. Um, but one that caught my eye was uh, the project at Catterick that they mentioned where uh, there was a, a flood scheme that they wanted to do um, that had affordability issues in itself and they were struggling to meet their own sort of internal rules uh, for um, securing the, the finance for it. And then there was a, an adjacent project that National Highways were doing um, and they couldn't quite make that viable uh, as well. Um, but when you put the two together, um, jointly they became viable. So you could you know, um, make it one single project that had some common aspects um, and, and then they were able to secure 
the or, or make that project investable and secure that the finance that they needed from both their organizations and some additional contributors and it feels that we need more of those uh, or more of that thinking and, and I was uh, relating it at the time uh, to a report that the National Audit Office released earlier in the year around the progress to um, net zero the 2050 net zero progress and, and one of their um, recommendations you know, both a criticism and a recommendation was the need to join up uh, opportunities between different government departments because we won't meet our 2050 net zero uh, uh, commitments uh, if we do them on a siloed basis uh, individually we need to start doing some joined up work across different aspects of, of government and, and across the wider public sector so that's tough though isn't it because our uh, the way that our uh, organizations are set up uh, naturally makes them uh, um, you know, focusing on their own objectives and, and, and mission rather than looking outside to see what, what else is coming uh, along. So these deal makers, it seems to me, and it'd be interesting to, to get your perspectives, that sort of collaborative leadership um, entrepreneurism uh, is a critical uh, trait that these deal makers need. Have you got any thoughts on, on that? So I can see you're nodding, James. Oh, you're muted, James. That's because my dog was barking. For <laughs> <laughs> its apologies. Um, no, I think you highlight a very important point that, that unfortunately the government is very siloed when it comes to risk taking. I mean, that's you know the you know different. You can't. There's no concept of shared financial risk in the public sector. It has to be on somebody's accounting officer account, and that makes life different. My my personal view is, if I look at the landscape within government, I think the National Infrastructure Bank has the capability to be a deal maker. I don't think that's where it's positioned. At the, I think what we heard from Steve is I don't think that's where it's positioned at the moment. I think it's positioned as an organisation that that can invest equity, debt, and provide guarantees. But I didn't. I didn't. I haven't seen anything that says to me it's going to be this deal maker. And a deal maker doesn't necessarily need to be the principal risk taker or the principal sponsor. The deal maker's role is to bring the parties together and thrash out a deal to facilitate. It's a, you know, um, I've been called a fixer in my past life, and and, and there, there's an element, you know, it could be fixer, deal maker, whatever you want to call it. Um, but as I said, I've just seen so many projects get delayed, uh, particularly where the public sector is involved because of the absence of a deal maker and the public sector sitting back. Uh, to see what risk other people are going to take. Now, I'm not blaming the public sector because, because it's very difficult. There are very few incentives in the public sector to take to take risk because there's so many checks and balances that come down on you from from uh, you know post post review retrospective re reviews that and you don't get rewarded for 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 success. You just get penalised for failure, which 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 causes causes a problem in the public sector um, when it comes to that is why Richard and Paul from the Environment Agency were so impressive I mean I, I I I was I was so impressed by their entrepreneurship I mean I actually said if you remember I said if you want to sell ice to Eskimos here's here, here's two guys who can do it for you but that they were putting these deals together I think 20% of their money for any flood flood relief scheme comes from the private sector and when we say the private sector this is coming from everyone from local developers to cement manufacturers to lawyers providing pro bono resource they just get everywhere to make these deals happen 
Yeah, and, it's, and it sort of opens uh, um, opportunities for us to consider, you know, other organisations uh, playing a part in, in deal making. Um, so in, in a recent seminar, we looked at um, the HiNet uh, Northwest, the hydrogen network that's being developed uh, as a looking at it from a systems perspective so a system within system but within there there's an organization called progressive energy which is like the the uh, the, the the advocate for the scheme and and they are in a sense what we're talking about the you know that the deal maker they're not the the organization but the funds will flow into or the finance will go to but they're working with the regulators and others to broker arrangements to increase the confidence overall in, in that scheme so they will attract others in um, and, and I guess it was similar to what we heard from Steve Lomas from the UK Infrastructure Bank where part of their rationale is to crowd uh, in rather to, than to crowd out and, and if they if they you know are associated with an opportunity then then we talked earlier Paul about um, about confidence, then the the presence of UK Infrastructure Bank will increase the confidence of others uh, to to come in. Um, as always, these podcast recordings, the the time rushes past, and uh, we're, we're we're rapidly coming to the end of the time that we have allocated. And uh, we, we you know we know that from feedback that our sort of members and, and listeners. Uh, really value these podcasts, but we do try to make them nice and short so that they uh, uh, don't go on for too long. So um, that's a, a roundabout way of saying that we need to, to wrap up <laughs> this uh, this podcast. So um, I'll go to each of you and perhaps ask if you could just uh, offer a top tip in terms of um, you know anyone working on a on a new scheme or, or that's seeking finance um, to you know for, for a project. What's your top tip in terms of improving? The investment appeal for their project. So um, I'll start with Stuart first, um, then Paul, then, then James. Yeah, my parting shot is that while absolutely the role of sponsor is incre increasingly becoming that of dealmaker, um, actually that doesn't mean that they have to be an expert in all the ins and outs of financial modelling and the contract law and all those other things. Really it's about identifying which potential partners have aligned interests and can bring something to the party and an overall interest in the outcome. And if you can do that, you're 90% way there. Um, and so I think that's uh, everyone. Everyone can be the deal maker in that context. Brilliant. Thank you, Stuart. Paul. Thanks, Andy. Um, my parting shot is, is about projects and programmes being uh, credible um, and being able to engage confidence uh, from potential uh, sponsors, potential investors and how important that is from the outset, as we discussed earlier on, actually having a credible plan. Um, final point is, uh, and to a certain extent, it revolves around this concept of a, um, a, a sponsor or promoter or whatever the term is that we end up with. Um, the, the credibility of the individual who is in that role, um, success, successful large scale projects and programs that tie together a lot of different threads will generally rely on the quality of that individual at the helm. So it is a very distinct role that's emerging that can add quite significant value to, uh, to bringing successful projects together. Great, thank you, Paul. And James, lastly to you. Yeah, I, I would endorse that last point of Paul's. Um, you know the correlation between good projects and good leaders is is absolute and bad projects and bad leaders so so yeah I, I, the one thing we haven't talked about is data which we did talk about on the day um 
And I do think that the more evidence and data you can produce at the early stage of a project to build confidence in what you're trying to do, the better. Um, now that one of the things we noted on the day was that for some of these particularly large public sector projects, they are first of a kind, you know, there's mm -hmm. no, um, so that can be quite challenging. But but as I said, if you if you can produce good data, good information, um, that would increase confidence. Yeah, we sort of saw that firsthand in with the the power of modelling to show impacts of um, different weather events on the on the flood uh, projects that Environment Agency were were looking at. Yeah, it feels that we could have a, a whole new seminar another day on the challenge of first of a kind uh, major projects, and uh, you know, it's, I've got I've got lots of ideas running away in my in my mind now. Um, one last thing that that we did uh, discuss on the day that we've not really followed up on, on on this one because we, we we address it many times elsewhere it is around environmental factors and, and I mentioned it right at the beginning around the sort of green finance and we know that you know um, ESG environmental social and governance uh, factors are, are critical in terms of the the funds that are available uh, out there um, and we know that from the work that we do uh, with our sustainability landmark objective that environmentally uh, um, sound projects um, do not need to cost more and they increase their appeal at the same time. So I think uh, th that would be my top tip if I'm allowed to add one as, as host, uh, which is uh, think of the environmental sustainability first uh, and it will enhance, not, not hinder the the project's investment appeal. So with that last thought, uh, I will bring this uh, podcast to a close. Um, for those of you who are, who, who are regular listeners will know that there's a highlights report that uh, um, accompanies the, the seminar that uh, should already be published. Uh, and then shortly we will produce the full transcript of all of the discussions and debates uh, and presentations that were held on the day. So please do visit our website and look out for that one. And also you'll see our upcoming seminars. So Thank you for listening.